We are moving right along here in section two, which is what can we know about what God is like in unit 2.4 tonight, a portrait of perfect unity, a portrait of perfect unity. Now, let me talk about where we've been to see where we're going, because here's what's going to happen this week and then every week that follows. I'm going to take all these pieces of things that we've talked about and start putting together a, a unified picture of God so that we have a greater understanding of the God we worship. But here's what we've said so far in this second section about what God is like. We've said in uh, 2.1 that He's unchanging, that God never changes. He doesn't improve. He doesn't diminish. He has been since the very beginning perfect in every way because for Him there is no beginning. He's eternal past. He's eternal present. He's eternal future. That's who God is. He's unchanging. In unit 2.2, we talked about him being completely independent. He did not come from anyone other than himself. He was not created. He does not need us. He is self-sustaining. He is self-sufficient. Life comes from himself. We, not so much. We need God to sustain us. God created us, but he also sustains us. I was talking about this this morning in our perspective member class. We don't realize this, but right now God is holding you up. He is sustaining you. He's giving you breath by breath. He's keeping the molecules that make your physical body. He's holding it all together. If God just stepped away, you would cease to exist because he's the one that's holding you together. He sustains. God does not need anybody to hold him together. He is the sustainer. And then last week in uh, Unit 2.3, we talked about that God is limitless. There is no limits to any of His attributes. He's infinite in all things. And so when we look at all these little aspects of God, we measure them by human standards. But we said that He's omnipresent, which means He's everywhere at all times. There's no limit to His presence. All right, He's omniscient. There's no limit to His knowledge. He knows everything that can possibly be known. And He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. There's no limit to His power. He can do anything He wants. This is the God we serve. Now, I'm going to take all these things that we've talked about the past few weeks, and tonight, we're going to put it all together, and we're going to acknowledge that God is not segmented in any of these areas, but all these attributes are one, and they're in perfect unity, and they're not about what God does as much as they are about who God is. Who God is. So let me start with number one. Divine without division. Basically, we're going to be talking about the unity of God. God is unity. He's harmonious. Everything works together perfectly. And that is so different than human beings. So different than human beings. Another way that theologians sometimes talk about the unity of God is that they say that it's the simplicity of God. But I don't like that term because God may be simple in the way that he's composed, but he's very complex and deep and hard to understand. So I like just the word unity. Unity just means there's no complexity to how God is structured. Everything is perfect and unified as one whole. But if that doesn't make any sense to you, it will when I contrast it with human beings because we are very complex and we are very segmented and it is because of our sin. So to say that God's unified, it just means that He is not divided into parts, but every attribute is absolute and unified without any segment or division. Now, when we're studying the Bible... And there's certain moments in history, those moments bring out one of his attributes. All right, so there are moments where we see the love of God shine forth. But that does not mean at any time that he's any less holy. His holiness is still there. 
But yet in that moment, we may be thinking about his love. We're in other moments where he talks about divine judgment. We're thinking about his holiness. But even in that judgment where he condemns sinners and sends them to an eternal hell, it's hard to understand this, but his love is still fully present because he's all these things at one time. But human beings, we're just not that way. And why? Number two, sin causes separation. Now, here's how we are as human beings. And here's why when we talk about attributes, that's how we decide what type of human being somebody is. But as human beings, you could be someone who is really, really hardworking, industrious. You're known for being a hard worker, but you're very impatient. On the other side, you may be someone who's very loving and, compar- and, and compassionate and caring towards someone, but you may have a problem with dishonesty. So you're segmented. There's areas where you really reflect God well, and then there's other areas where you, you've really fallen short and sin has really gotten a hold of your character. And so every single one of us is flawed, and because of those flaws, we can see the seams in someone's character. We can say, in this side... They certainly have a lot of godly attributes, but boy, the weaknesses over here show us that they have a lot to work on. God is not that way. He's infinite and perfect in every single one of his aspects. He's not lacking at all in his love or in his holiness, even though sometimes those things seem like opposites, they work together and he's perfect in every way. But because we're human, we segment everything. I'll talk about how we do that later. In fact, we segment God. And at the conclusion of our time together, I'm going to talk about how we do that, because when you pray to God, you probably see him as loving or holy, but you probably don't see him as both. Most of us beeline it to one side or the other when we're praying to God. And what I want out of this study tonight is to is to challenge you in your prayer life to think about God as both at the same time, to talk about him as both at the same time. So let me just continue on with this unity of God as we talk about the anatomy of an absolute being. All right. He is supreme and fully complete and undivided in everything about him. In fact, I love this quote from A.W. Tozer. He says, the harmony of his being is the result not of the perfect balance of parts, but of the total absence of parts. Here's what I mean by that. Some of you may say, okay, well, if God is loving and he's holy and he's gracious and he's merciful, then all these are like instruments that play one song. And I would say, no, I would take it even a step further. It's not that there's instruments playing all these different notes making one song. All these instruments are playing one note. They're all, God is all love and he is all holy and he is all merciful. And you cannot separate those. You just can't. But as humans, we want to so bad. Is God loving or is he holy? He is both. Same time, can't separate them. And I'm going to tell you, it's just something that we do as human beings. I'm moving pretty quick here because I want to get towards the end. In harmony with who he is, I want to say that Scripture teaches us this is what makes God different than us. His attributes are not what he does as much as it is who he is. I'll give you a couple examples. 1 John 4, 8 says, Anyone who does not know love does not know God because God is love the bible does not say god is loving well he's a very loving person no he is love it is his character he himself is love none of us in this room can say that we can say that we have the capacity to show love but none of us would say i am love no you may be loving and that is a reflection of what you do but this is where god is different 
it is who he is. God cannot not love because it's who he is. To ask God to stop loving would be to ask Eddie to stop being a Jones. Whether you like it or not, you've got that DNA flowing in your veins. You've got Melrose Jones flowing in your bloodstream. You cannot not be a Jones. God cannot not stop loving because it is who he is. But he's also holy. It is who he is. God is holy. And because he is holy, he cannot compromise his holiness. And that's why all sin has to be accounted for. That's why you need a Savior. It's why I need a Savior. God can't overlook sin. He just can't do that. In His love, He wants you to be redeemed, but in His holiness, He demands that for you to be redeemed, every sin is accounted for. And this is how we know that we need Jesus. It also says in 1 John 1.5, God is light. In Him, there is no darkness at all. Sometimes that's hard to understand when you read the Old Testament. Have you ever, I'm just going to tell you my journey as a Christian. So I grew up in the, you know, obviously in the 80s and 90s, and, and this was the era where the baby boomers uh, were the ones teaching their children, and they got so tired of their parents banging home the holiness of God and the judgment of God, and so they responded by just talking about God is love, God is love, God is love. And so all I heard about God is just this infinitely benevolent God who winks at my sin and just wants to love me and shower me with affection. And then I bought a Bible and I read the Old Testament and I saw God's wrath and his anger towards Israel. And I thought, this does not describe the God that people were telling me about when I was growing up. But then I read the New Testament and I said, wow, this sounds a lot more like the God that I know. But here's the thing, is it, which, which God is it? And the answer is God is both. All right, it's the same God of the Old Testament as he is in the New but for some reason, we beeline it to one side or the other. But we have to understand he is the infinite amount of love and light in every single one of these attributes. They don't diminish and they don't increase or decrease at any time in history because it is who he is. All right. When you think of holiness and love and all these other attributes, I want you to think about them as if they're God's last name. He can't, he can't deny the genealogy of his family. All right, you can't deny the genealogy of your family. Whether you like it or not, you come from certain mother and father. And God, who comes from no one, has his own nature, and he cannot deny his own nature. He will never, ever, ever decrease or diminish in his love or in his holiness or in any other of his attributes. That leads us on to number five, singular fruit of a spirit-filled life. Singular fruit of a spirit-filled life. Now I'm going to show you how... We as human beings segment things, but how God is unified in everything. All right, the perfect example is Galatians chapter 5. And you guys, this is one of the famous passages in scriptures. We got a lot of mature Christians in this room, so most of you are familiar with Galatians 5. We had the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. All right, listen to the works of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. It says, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's sin. And that sin segments us. It separates. It's the works, plural, of the, of the flesh. All these separate little works that we as sinners partake in. 
Now, what's the contrast of that? The fruit of the Spirit. Now, notice I didn't say fruits, plural. All of the fruit that I'm going to mention is basically one fruit birthed out in these different dimensions of one fruit. Here's what it says in verses 22 through 23. But the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. Now you say, well, Bo, I I think that's fruits plural, and I'm going to tell you why it's singular. If you have one of those, you have them all. If you're missing one, you're missing them all. And how do I know that? What's the famous passage on love that you hear at every wedding? Call it out. What's that? John, well, John 3.16, but what's the love passage at every wedding? 1 Corinthians 13, that's exactly right. Right, so, all right, it, you just said love is patient, love is kind. You just mentioned three aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, patience, and kindness. Right, but just in that one, that first statement, Brother Eddie, love is patient, love is kind. Love, patience, kindness. All three are used to describe one reality. Love is not different than patience, and love is not different than kindness. If you're not patient, you're not loving. If you're not kind, you're not loving. Your love is not real if you don't have all three of those aspects. So the fruit is singular. It's unified. It's one fruit that has different aspects to it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now we see how God is one person. And all of these attributes are together as one. He cannot be loving and not holy because His love and His holiness are connected perfectly. He cannot be wrathful and and merciful and split those out. He is wrathful, but He also shows mercy. Justice and grace, they all come together. It doesn't seem that way because we don't fully understand but where we're segmented, where we can be someone who has, has this right here, we're hardworking, but over here we're dishonest, or over here you know, we're one thing and over here we're another. God is everything in perfect unity without any darkness, without any sin, without any diminishing at all. Now, this moves us on to the same God throughout the Scriptures. Again, I go back to how I grew up. I was told that God is love, 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 love. And I open the Old Testament and I see God is holy and full of just, justice and a God of wrath and a God who won't tolerate sin. And it almost seems like he's incredibly impatient. If, if all I had was the Old Testament, it would be very difficult for me to develop a doctrine of the love of God. But because we also have the New Testament, it gives us a beautiful, well-rounded portrait of who God is. Here's the thing I want to say about God in the, in the scriptures. Um, I remember years ago having lunch with Larry Guido, and I said, to, I said to Papa Larry, I said, you know, I'm reading the Old Testament, and I've always believed that God is loving, but I see his immediate vengeance on people for their sin, and it's hard for me to see him as loving. And one thing Dr. Guido said to me, he said, well, you have to understand one thing. To whom much is given, much is required. And so Israel was held to a higher standard than the rest of the world because they were the covenant people of God. And sometimes we see moments where God wipes out Levitical priests who dishonor him in the temple, or he wipes out someone that touches the Ark of the Covenant, and it just seems like, wow, God's really not very patient. He's not very full of grace. But we have to understand 
that's one moment in time where we forget all the other times around that where God was patient and God did clearly explain that he's holy and that he's not going to wink at somebody's sin and that he expects people to obey him. See, every story in the scriptures points to one moment, but we don't see the 40 years in the desert that surround that one moment. And in those moments, we see later on that God is patient and he's full of grace and full of mercy. He gives people decades to repent. And yet they still won't do it. I mean, think about Noah and the ark, how long it took him to build the ark and how many years and decades went by as Noah called them to repent and they wouldn't before the flood came. And, then, and, and again, 40 years in the wilderness, Israel had all kinds of time to learn and grow in their dependence upon God, but they refused. You know, it, it's, it's hard to see in, in, a, in a funnel, in a vacuum, that God is loving and holy until you read the whole Bible. Now, let me give you some examples. I'm going to talk about the storyline of the Bible. I'm going to start with Genesis, and we're going to move to Revelation. And I'm going to show you how in one of those stories, you may see one aspect of God, but you have to weigh it with another aspect of God. All right, so let me start with creation. In Genesis chapter 1, we think about God creating the world, and everything that He was created was good. And then when He created human beings, He said it was very good. He looked back at His creation, and He smiled. And he's seen it in that portrait in Genesis 1 as a loving father. All right, so you're reading Genesis 1. If you ever bought a Bible, the first time you read it, you're in Genesis 1. You're like, I like the story so far. This is good. He's creating the world. He loves me. He loves the world. This is a good story. Why? How come I never read the Bible? I'm going to read this every day. And then you get to Genesis 3, and you're like, whoa, pump the brakes. All right, fall, Genesis 3, mankind sins. And all of a sudden, we see the holiness of God. We no longer see the, the portrait of the loving God, but what we see him is as a holy God and a holy God who kicks them out of the garden for their disobedience. Now, in the moment that of God's anger that he called out Adam and Eve and called out Satan and then he kicked them out of the garden, was he no longer loving? Of course he was loving. His love never diminished. But in that story, his holiness became the focal point because it was his holiness that was violated. And he had to act according to his holy nature and deal with that sin. But if you look a little bit closer later on in Genesis 3, he does two things. He makes a promise in Genesis 3.15 that he'll bring redemption. A seed from the woman will come to crush the head of Satan and make a way from death to life. And all of a sudden we see this merciful God. And then God goes even further in verse 21 and he covers their nakedness with animal skins, providing redemption and covering their, their shame. So all of a sudden, we knew that God was loving in Genesis 1. We see His holiness in Genesis 3. And then we see in 3.15 that He's merciful and He's sovereign and He has a plan. And then in 20, verse 21, we see again that He's loving and He's covering them with animal skins. He's all these things at one time. But in every story, we only see one aspect of it. And we've got to remember all the other aspects together as one because that's who God is. And we move on to the New Testament and we think about the redemption of Christ. He was a suffering servant who earned our righteousness, atoned for our sins, and made a way from death to life. And so we say, man, God is a God of grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. But then we get to Revelation, and we see the second coming of Jesus, riding on a white horse, sword coming out of his mouth, ready to slay nations, sending people to an eternal hell. And you say, wow, that's a just God. How can he be loving? He's loving when you see that story in light of the whole story of how, what great lengths God has go, gone to to be patient with human beings and give them time to repent and come to faith in Him. So you see, we segment things. 
We take one story out of the Bible and we want to make that the God we worship, which, by the way, is the danger of reading devotional books. I'm not saying we should stop reading them, but you're not going to read devotional books where there's entire chapters in your morning readings that tell you about hell and your sin and God's wrath. What you're going to hear is God's love and God's plan and, you know, (laughs) Jeremiah 29.11, every time I see that in a devotional, I cringe for For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, to give you hope in a future. Well, what's the context of Jeremiah 29, 11? The context is the people of Israel are going into a 70-year exile in Babylon and their house has been burned to the ground. Have a great life. I got a great plan, right? But we see that as, I know the plans I have for you. This means I'm going to succeed and have a great career and a great family. Nothing's going to go wrong. And we misinterpret. We say, well, if God is love, nothing bad is going to happen. But we forget that in that love that God promised his people that he had a plan for them, we also saw his holiness where they were punished for 70 years. We got to see the whole picture. We got to see the whole picture of God. And that moves me on to the crescendo of all of Scripture, connecting everything at the cross. Connecting everything at the cross. The cross is where every attribute of God finds its truest glory. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about your Lord and Savior on the cross. We're, you know, we're getting ready for Easter, right? And we're thinking about the, resurrect, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when you think about the cross at Calvary, I want you to see every aspect of God all at one time. Here's what I mean. We can see God's sovereignty and His wisdom. In His sovereignty, He had an eternal plan that He promised in Genesis 3.15 that He was going to make a way for redemption from the seed of a woman. And now the plan's coming to fruition through Jesus Christ. So He's wise and He had a sovereign plan and He's executing the plan. On the cross, we can see the justice and holiness of God. God had to punish His Son for your redemption, for the atonement of your sins, for the punishment that you deserved and I deserved. Had to punish Him. But while he's punishing him and we see the justice of God and the holiness of God, we see the love and the mercy of God. We see the love and the mercy of God the Father who is willing to give up his son, John 3, 16. For he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. But then we also see the love of Christ himself, that he would be willing to be the Passover lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that he would willfully go to the cross. He laid down his life. Nobody took his life from him. He willingly laid it down for the people. So in that, we see amazing grace and love. And then we see patience. We see that God, now after the cross, is being patient in this, what we call this age of grace. He's waiting for people to come to faith in Jesus. When you watch the news and you say, God, why won't you put an end to all this evil? And I said this this morning to our prospective members, and I'll say it to you. We don't like the answer, but here's the answer. If God were to eliminate evil from this world, he'd have to eliminate me and you as well. He would, because we're sinners. We see see maybe a higher degree of evil and mass murderers and child molesters, but make no mistake about it, we too, we've got evil in our hearts. God's cleansing that through the Holy Spirit if we're believers. But the reason God has not eliminated Satan and has not eliminated all evil in the world is because if he had to wipe out evil, he'd have to wipe out you. And so at the cross, we see grace and then we see patience as Jesus is waiting for more people 
to come to faith. All at one time, we see all of this at the cross. That's why it is the definitive moment of human history. Everything points forward to the cross in the Old Testament and points back to the cross in the New Testament and the welcoming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the focal point of all of the Scriptures and of all of human history. And that moves us on to our eighth and final point. And here's where it gets practical. Here's where I want this idea of the unity of God to get into your bones. So that when you're praying or you're going through something difficult and all you see is one side of God, you're willing to consider the other side at the same time. All right, I want to start by asking you, which attribute of God do you tend to think more about? If I said, is God loving or holy? You may know that he's both, but what side do you lean on more? All right, well, you think about that. And I want, I want, this, I want to challenge you to consider the other side in equal quantity. So if you're someone who sees God as loving, and when you pray, you, you, just, you just know that you're praying to a loving God, that's great because He is, and you should. But I want you to understand that you're also praying to a God who's holy. Now, it's my guess that in this room, again, because a lot of this is generational, all right, most of you, in the baby boomer generation and in the post-World War II, the, the GI generation and the silent generation, all right, if you're born in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, I feel like you have a pretty good understanding of the holiness of God because you had a rough life. You understood what it was to work by the sweat of the brow. You had parents that were strict disciplinarians. That's just the culture that you grew up in. And so you see God as holy. I hear it in the prayers of the saints of this church. When someone over 60 years old in this church prays, I hear the holiness of God. So maybe for some of you, you need to start seeing God as unbelievably loving, tender, merciful father. Because maybe you didn't have an earthly father that was that way. But in, in your heavenly father is all that your earthly father was not. You know, and we can celebrate that. Now, my generation, we need a heavy dose of the holiness of God. All right, because what happens is with my generation, when all we think about is the love of God, we think God plays games. Because He's love, I'll do what I want to do now and ask forgiveness tomorrow morning. And God says, I love you, but you know what? You're going to pay a price for that because I'm not to be trifled with because I am holy and I am loving, but I'm not going to forgive you until you truly repent. If you think you can do that today and just ask forgiveness tomorrow and keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it with no consequence, then you don't understand my holiness. And again, that's not to say there are not certain sins that we all struggle with, right? Because we all have certain besetting sins because of our nature that we're always going to struggle with until Christ comes back. But we need to keep it in balance. And the reason I say love and holiness, even though there's so many different attributes, is because that, these two are really polarizing. All right, The love of God we're going to make a beeline to, or the holiness of God we're going to make a beeline to. And what I want for all of us in this room is when you pray, I want you to think about His holiness and His love at the same time. At the same time. And, and the second thing I want to say is think about your life right now. Whatever situation you're struggling with, everybody in this room has struggles right now. For some of you, it's physical. For some of you, it's spiritual. For some of you, it's emotional. For some of you, it's all three wrapped up in a pretty little bow. In the midst of whatever you're struggling with right now, if it's financial, whatever it is, you're probably thinking about one aspect of God more than the other. 
All right, you're probably thinking of one aspect of God more than the other. And so I want to say in the moment that you're in, don't forget the fullness of who God is. If you're struggling and you're frustrated, remember that you're praying to a God that is omnipotent. He can do anything at any time. He may not do exactly what you want when you want it, but he has the power to do all things. And he also is omniscient, which he knows everything. So if he's not doing something you're asking for, it's because he knows what's best for you. And so we need to remember his omniscience, that he's wiser than we are. Yes, we are to pray. James says we have not because we've asked not. But if we ask and we don't receive, it's not because God doesn't have all the information. And it's not because God is not good or loving. The Bible says there's no darkness in him at all. It's because he knows as your father, it's better that he not give you what you ask for. As Paul said, when he could not get that thorn removed from his side, His grace is sufficient because His power is made perfect in our weakness. All right, I want you to remember a certain certain, uh, Scripture verse. I've already used this in our series, but I'm going to use it again. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to His purpose. How do I know that? Because God is good. He's good. There's there's no lack of good in God. He's perfectly good. He'll always be perfectly good. So if he's allowing something to happen in your life that's not good, he's going to work it together for good because that is his nature. We can't see it right now because we're not at the finish line yet. But we'll, we'll get there. And when we do, we'll say, thank you, God, that you answered my prayer here, but that you, you answered my prayer no over here. Because you knew that you'd bring a greater good by saying yes over here and no over here. I can't see it now in my perspective, but I'll be able to see it one day when I look back. I have to believe that. I have to believe in every situation that we're in that God is everything at one time. He's loving. He's holy. He's good. He's wise. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere at all times. He has all the information that he needs. I am to pray to him, trust in him, rest in him, seek strength from him, and let him be the king and the Lord of my life because he knows better than I do. This is the God we serve. He's such a big God. And I want us to have a big picture of who he is. I know we've, we've gone through so much the last eight weeks, and therefore, there's, I mean, we're, we're stretching our understanding of God. But I just want us to get out of our comfort zone of praying the same prayers and of having the same vision of who he is when we pray. We need to have a God-sized view of the God that we serve. Because unlike God who's unified, we segment everything. As I close, I'll just... I'll share this. I, uh, I no- I'm noticing this with Wren, okay? There's so many things about humans that, that you notice when you have children and grandchildren. You guys all know this. I'm learning this for the first time. But you notice aspects of their nature that kind of teach you things. One thing Wren loves to do is separate everything. We have this tradition now. We do it about twice a day. I think we're, we're spoiled rotten at the parsonage is right near the Guido Gardens because she says, uh, Daddy, you want to pick red ones? She says it every day. We go up to the Guido Gardens, and these little berries are all over the the pathways, and she loves to pick them individually and then sort them in a group over here. And then she goes and picks dandelions and all these other little flowers, and then she puts them in a pile over here. And then when we get home, she takes all of her toys and and segments them by whatever show they come from. So all the bubble guppies go over here. Mickey Mouse Clubhouse goes over here. And she separates everything in piles and steps back and looks at it and counts it and then puts it back in. 
there's something about her that loves to separate and organize. And that's probably for me because I live by categories. I, I, I mean, one of the greatest gifts God has ever given me is a label maker. I love that thing. I love to segment and categorize and subcategorize and organize and label and put that category over here and put this over here because my brain is like a file cabinet and everything goes in categories. Dave said when he first moved here, Bo, I've never met anyone that has a category for everything in your head. I said, my head is a file cabinet. It's the only way I I can make sense of it. But that's also a reflection of who we are. We segment everything. When you go to the drive-thru, what Burger King always tells you, you can have it your way, right? So here's what I do. It makes no sense. When I go to Burger King, I ask for a burger with no onions but a side of onion rings. You know why? Because I want my onions cooked. I don't want an uncooked onion on the burger, but I'll eat an onion ring all day long. Makes no sense, right? It's just what I, that's how I segment it. I want this, but I don't want this. I want this, but I don't want this. Now, here's the danger. We do the same thing with God. In fact, I, I call this the golden corral approach to God. I love his, 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 his love and his grace and his mercy. So that's like the mac and cheese, and that's the chocolate fountain for dessert but I'm going to bypass the greens over here. I'm going to bypass all the vegetables and all the nutrients over here. That'd be the holiness of God. When I go to the Golden Corral and pay 12 bucks, I don't want to fill up on what's good for me. I want to fill up on what tastes good. And so we have this Golden Corral view of God where we say, I like this over here, but I'd rather just not deal with this over here. And I see it all the time. Again, it's a generational thing. There are some folks in your generation, I'm speaking mostly to the 60 and older crowd, that you've had such a hard life, it's so hard for you to see God as tender and loving. And for people in my generation who've been pampered, it's hard to see God as holy and and uncompromising in His holiness and incapable of tolerating sin. You know, one of the things that was on my heart this morning when I was talking about wasted words is even though God's a God of love and a God of grace, He really does He is so holy, he really is incapable of tolerating some of the nonsense that comes out of our mouth. Now, he's a God of grace and long-suffering for us, but Jesus clearly says in Matthew, we're going to be judged for every careless word that we've ever spoken. That ought to strike fear into our hearts. And so, as we draw to a close, I'm going to land the plane here and maybe open up a time for discussion. I just challenge every single one of us, myself included, to go past the golden corral approach to God and accept Him as one buffet of attributes, but not one is greater than another. They're not separated by containers. God is everything at one time because He is a unified God.